0: Okay, well, welcome back to week seven. There's only one more week after this. You guys are almost done. I am so proud of you guys for sticking with it. Next week, we get to eat Jade's famous cookies. Woo! And we're going to wrap up everything next week, kind of like something, bring it all together, okay? Today, though, we still have more of the text left. We are going to be in the last four chapters of the book. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we can dive in. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for bringing all of us here tonight. I know we all have busy lives and a lot going on. Um, Thank you that you have just created this space that we can pause from all of the craziness and just come and really study your word and hopefully be changed and transformed by it. So God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to be present and active and moving, revealing to us what you want us to know. Let this, again, just not be people talking to one another, but let this be your spirit um, revealing things to us, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, last week, Madison walked us through the death of Absalom and then David getting to kind of regain his seat on the throne. It was really messy. It was full of bloodshed. Really, the last three weeks, the last 12 chapters have been really tough to swallow. It has been some low, low points. Luckily, the author does not make us end on those low, low points, though, okay? That hard portion of the book is wrapped up, and now the author is going to shift gears, and he gives us these final four chapters, Now, I'm guessing when you read these four chapters, it probably felt like a really strange, scattered mix. We start with this covenant that had been broken. Then we get some of David's mighty men. And then we get David's song. And then his last words. And then more mighty men. And then a census that seems really strange to us, but somehow David shouldn't have done it. We're not really sure why. It just seems like a really strange way to wrap up the entire book. As scattered as as it seems, though, Scholars are pretty much unanimous that these four chapters are meant to be read as one cohesive unit. So these events that we see tonight, they're not in chronological order. These are writings that we're gonna read. These are very specifically chosen, collected stories from all over David's reign. And the author chose them for a specific purpose and he pieced them together in a specific order for a specific reason. And the purpose he gave us all of these stories tonight and all of these pieces of literature is to paint a picture Of David as the ideal king so how do we know this that seems like a big leap to say right if you guys have read these chapters you're like I don't know how we got there from what I just read so how do we how do we kind of make that conclusion well what makes scholars so sure that this scattered mix of stories is supposed to be one whole unit is something called a chiastic structure okay this is a literary structure that's found all throughout the Bible it's called a chiastic structure it's spelled with a CH if you're writing this down And this is a structure where a verse or a passage repeats itself, but in reverse order. So both halves are kind of like a mirror image of each other. So an example of this, when it's used in a single verse, is when Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So we see Sabbath man, man Sabbath. They kind of mirror each other. That's the chiastic structure in one verse. Well, if you look at these four chapters, the structure of the entire four chapters is one big chiastic structure because first we have this crisis like a public disaster then we have a list of mighty warriors and then we have poetry then we have more poetry another list of mighty warriors and another public disaster so do you see there's a symmetry here these sections they're meant to mirror one another now an important thing to know about this kind of chiastic structure when it's in bigger sections of scripture like this is that typically the most important part was in the middle Okay, so like whatever point the author was really trying to drive home, that's going to be in the very middle portion of that chiastic structure, okay? So one commentator, he described it kind of like an arrowhead. And the middle section of the text is kind of like the point that the rest of the, he- the text is sort of pushing forward. Another commentator said it's kind of like a sandwich. The bread's not nearly as important as what's inside. So the middle is what the author is wanting to emphasize the most. And the ancient readers would have known this. So here in these chapters, these, you know, like the four that we have tonight, those two units of poetry, David's song and then his last words, those are the middle. So those are the most important part. That's what the author is really wanting to drive home and really want us to learn. We have these two poems that are then sandwiched by lists of mighty warriors. That's kind of like an inner frame. Then all of that is sandwiched again by these two accounts of crises or public disasters that David had to deal with. So tonight, we're going to work through the text a little bit differently. Instead of just working from beginning to the end of these chapters, I want to keep that chiastic structure in mind. And instead of moving from the beginning to the end, we're going to start at the outer layer, kind of the outer frame. And we're going to move our way inward. Because if the most important part that the author is wanting us to leave with that the author is wanting to really drive home, if that's the middle, then I don't want that middle part to get lost in this talk, okay? I want to end with it because I want the most important part that the author is emphasizing to really linger with us as we leave here. So as we do this, as we move through these layers tonight, we're going to see with each layer of the structure how David was the ideal king. Those are the lenses that I want you to have as we work through the text tonight, okay? We're going to see that David was the ideal king not because he was without sin, We clearly have seen for three weeks that that is not the case. But he's the ideal king because he submitted to God as the ultimate king, okay? So that's what I want you to be looking for in each of these layers. So with that, we're going to go ahead and jump in. So the section tonight, we start off with a really tough and confusing account of David having to put to death seven of Saul's sons. And he has to do this in order to satisfy a covenant that Saul had broken. Okay, so I'm going to read the beginning of it, and then we're going to try to unpack it a little bit. So go to verse, or chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. <clears throat> now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and how shall I make atonement, that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is, is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I should do for you? They said to the king, "The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord." And the king said, "I will give them." <coughs> so we're told here that there was a famine, and in true David fashion, the first thing that he does is he seeks the face of the Lord. Now, this information is supposed to clue us in. It's supposed to clue us in that how David responds in this section is good, okay? It was the right thing to do. And this is important because when we read this and we're like, wait a minute, he gave seven of Saul's sons to be hanged even though they didn't do anything wrong, that doesn't really feel right to us. It doesn't really feel good. It feels kind of awful, So it's tempting to read this and be like, ah, this is just another bad choice that David made. After all, we have seen 12 chapters of him kind of having his lowest of lows, and so it just makes sense that we would continue reading it that way. But no, the author wants us to know that this was done under the guidance of the Lord. This was not a rash or sinful thing on David's part. Remember, this story is supposed to illustrate why David was an ideal king. So we have to ask, well, how is this so? How can this be a good thing that he did? Well, our first step to make sense of this is that we have to deepen our understanding of a covenant in ancient Israel because we don't really have this in our culture. We don't make covenants in our culture. It's definitely not the way that they did. Um, so just to kind of give you a little bit of an explanation here, there were several different types of covenants in ancient Israel. Some of them were more serious and solemn than others. The most serious and the most solemn oath was what a lot of people refer to as a blood oath, okay? Okay. A blood oath was a promise that was so serious that there was this formal ceremony, a formal process that they would go through to make that oath binding. So what they would do in these blood oaths is they would take an animal and they would cut it in half. And they would place the two halves apart from each other. And then the person swearing the oath would walk in between the two halves of the animal. And that symbolized their commitment. So for them to walk between this animal, that was like they were saying, if I break this covenant, may what happened to this animal happen to me. So this covenant was basically asking Yahweh, asking God to bring death upon them if they ever broke their word. So to make this type of covenant, it was a really big deal. And so when they were doing this, they were swearing on the name of Yahweh. And not just among themselves, they were doing this, uh, like in some situations, around people that were not of their group, not of Israel. So other people outside tribes would hear this happen, swearing on the name of Yahweh. They were telling Yahweh to bring death upon them if they broke this covenant. So that is the most serious kind of covenant. It's going to come to play in a minute. So in this section that we've just read and that we you know, are going to get to, there's several covenants that are all going to come into play. First, I want you to remember that long ago, God had made a covenant with Israel. When he gave Moses the Ten Commandments and then he gave him the law, he made a conditional covenant with Israel. And he said, if you are faithful to this covenant, if you worship me and me alone, and if you follow all of these laws that I'm giving you, then I will bless you and provide for you. But if they did not keep their end of the covenant, if they broke these laws, if they were unfaithful to God— then God would bring calamity on them. And he did this to them over and over again in the book of Judges in order to bring them back to the covenant, to bring them to repentance, okay? So with this covenant that he made with Israel, this was a sort of a type of blood oath, not in the formal sense that there was no animals cut in half and walked through for this ceremony, but for this covenant, instead of taking the lives of the Israelites when they broke an oath or broke parts of the law, God gave them a sacrificial system so that instead these animals would substitute for their life, okay? So they would get to kill and sacrifice animals to atone for that broken covenant rather than them having to pass through the, anil- through the broken pieces and say, kill me, okay? Does that make sense? So this sacrificial system was so that they would not face the wrath and the death when they broke the covenant. Now, this was a huge part of the lives of the Israelites because they were constantly offering the blood of animals to have to atone for specific ways that they constantly broke their covenant with God, Okay? So that's the first covenant that's at play here, the covenant between Israel and God. Next, we see in the text that Israel had cut a covenant with the Gibeonites. Now, the phrasing that's used in the book of Joshua when this happened, that of cutting a covenant, that indicates that this was the type of oath, this was the type of covenant where they would pass through a cut animal, just like we just talked about. So this was a blood oath that they had sworn with the Gibeonites. This was one that called upon the name of Yahweh to kill them if they ever broke this oath. This is a big deal that they did this with these foreign people. So what led them to do this? Well, back when they had first started to enter the promised land and God was giving them victory over all these other Canaanite cities, the Gibeonites, they were one of these Canaanite cities, and they, they kind of heard what was happening, and they did not want to be Israel's next targets. So they kind of tricked Israel, and they put on clothes that were really worn out looking and shoes that looked like they had traveled really far. They were carrying provisions that made it look like they had taken this long journey. And they kind of wander and come across the Israelites. And they say, oh, you know, we've heard about what you're doing. And we live so far away. We're not a threat to you. Like, please make a covenant that you're not going to hurt us. We're harmless to you. We live really far away. We're not in the territory that you're wanting. So, Back in this book of Joshua, Israel made a covenant with them without inquiring of the Lord. It's very clear when this happened that this was not really something that they probably should have done. They made a covenant with the Gibeonites without inquiring of the Lord that they would not harm them. And not just any covenant, they made a blood covenant. Then they found out shortly after that they had been tricked. And the Gibeonites were, in fact, from a very close place, well, probably one of the next places that they were going, planning to go to and attack and go to war with. But now they couldn't do it. They couldn't go and attack the Gibeonites without breaking the covenant oath that they had just made and without bringing wrath and death upon themselves that they knew that Yahweh would deliver because that is what happens when you break a blood oath. So this covenant that they made a long time ago was not the best decision on the part of Israel. We learn in the text here that when Saul was the king, he broke that covenant and he put a portion of the Gibeonites to death. So we read this and we're like, yeah, I know, but I mean, Saul broke the covenant. So how, why should anybody else have to pay the price for a covenant that he broke? Here's the thing, though. This covenant, it wasn't between Saul and the Gibeonites. Saul wasn't even alive when the covenant was cut. This covenant was between all of Israel and the Gibeonites. So when Saul killed the Gibeonites, he didn't break the covenant just as an individual person. He was the king. He represented all of Israel, and now all of Israel was liable for this broken oath. So as king, Saul caused all of Israel as a whole to break their oath with the Gibeonites, and now all of Israel is kind of under judgment for it. They're given this sign from God with this famine that there had been a covenant violation that needed to be atoned for. We already established that to break a blood oath, this specific type of covenant, the only atonement was blood. So let me ask you just for a second, if the most serious type of covenant was one that called upon the name of God, the name of Yahweh, asking that God would kill them if they broke it, and they swear this oath in front of people that don't know this Yahweh, that don't know this God, but then God did nothing to enforce that. People could just break these covenants using swearing on the name of Yahweh, and there's nothing to atone for it. What would that say about the reliability of God's name? it would completely discredit God's reputation, because his name would mean nothing. So Israel, they made this oath knowing full well what they were doing, knowing full well the consequences would be carried out, because their God is not a God to discredit his own name. So that's the second covenant in play. But There's one more covenant in the text tonight that we're going to see for a brief second, and it's put in here very purposefully, So verse 7, when we go further on, it tells us that, yes, David did hand over those seven sons they asked for, but he did not choose Mephibosheth as one of those, okay? That was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. Why did he not hand over Mephibosheth? Well, we're reminded here that David had sworn a covenant to Jonathan that he would protect his family. And we've seen in the past few weeks that he is faithful to that covenant. He shows kindness to Mephibosheth, and he continues to keep that covenant here and not handing him over to the Gibeonites. I don't know what kind of covenant this was. I don't know if this was a blood oath or a less serious one, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is that David kept this covenant. The author seems to want us to know that David is a covenant keeper. Well, we just saw that Saul was a covenant breaker. So then we move on in the text, and we see that the descendants of Saul are indeed handed over, and just like the Gibeonites requested, and then they are hung by the Gibeonites. And if this feels uncomfortable to you, it should. In fact, the author goes through very great lengths. He goes above and beyond to make sure that we feel uncomfortable with it. Read verse 10 with me that tells us what one of the mothers of the hanged sons does. 21 verse 10. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. Why would the author include this? Why would the author want us to visualize a mother remaining by the hanged body of her son, protecting it from being eaten by birds and wild animals, which was considered the most shameful form of burial in that culture? This is a really vivid and a really heartbreaking picture, so why include it? Why not just leave it out? Well, I think that the author really wants us to see and feel that atonement is horrible. It's gruesome. This story should leave us feeling really solemn. With blood oaths, broken covenants required something that is not easy to give. It required blood, and we shouldn't be callous. We shouldn't be unfeeling about that. As one commentator put it, from Slicing Bull's Throats in Leviticus 1, 1 all the way to Calvary, God has always said that atonement is nasty and repulsive. I don't think that God delights in seeing people die like this, and I don't think that David did either, but God is a covenant keeper even when the cost is hard to swallow. David was a covenant keeper even when the cost was hard to swallow. Not only did he keep his covenant with Jonathan, but he did what was ugly but necessary to carry out the terms of the covenant that had been broken for the sake of all of Israel, so that Israel as a whole wouldn't be under judgment for it anymore. David was a covenant keeper. So we read this, and even still, it feels so hard, but I want you to consider, what if the opposite were true? What if God said, well, sure, you formally swore an oath in my name in front of these other people asking me to kill you if you broke it, but... I'm going to let it slide this time. The oath doesn't really mean that much. I'm just going to turn away and pretend like I didn't see it. I mean, that's kind of what we want to see God do here, isn't it? That's kind of what we feel like seems more right. We want God to withhold his wrath and judgment. We want him to be this warm and fuzzy God that we like to picture. But if God did that, if he didn't faithfully enforce these covenants, what confidence would we have that he will be faithful to the covenant that we have with him in Christ? I want you to think again of that bloody and graphic scene that we just saw, the death that was required when a covenant like this one was broken. We're also very unable to keep a covenant like the ones that the Israelites were expected to keep. We would all be covenant breakers, but in this new covenant that we have with Christ, the death and the blood that is required has already been paid. And that death of Christ dying for our sins was even more heartbreaking than that of these seven sons. These seven sons, they're not perfect, but they, did hung, they hung for sons that they did, the sins that they did not commit. And we read this, and we're heartbroken. We see this picture of a mother grieving for them and caring for their bodies. And we don't know these people. We had nothing to do with this situation, but we read it, and it really tugs on our emotions. It makes us feel something. Well, I want you to consider that Christ was perfect. He was without sin fully, and his body hung as well. His body hung on a cross, dying also for sins that he did not commit. And all four Gospels are specific to note that Jesus' mother was present as his crucifixion as well. He too had a grieving mother present. It was a gut-wrenching and heartbreaking crucifixion. And we're intimately involved with that event because the covenant breaker that he is dying for is us. So we need to ask, are we as moved when we think about the death of Christ as we are when we think about this story with these seven Atonement is not pretty, and we prefer not to think about it, and when we read about it, we think, "That doesn't sound like the God I know." What does that tell us about our understanding of what Christ actually did for us? What does that tell us about how we regard what He did at the cross? Do we really understand the depths of the sacrifice that Christ made for us, of what it cost him? It should move us to tears when we consider the solemnness, the ugliness and the pain that comes with a broken covenant. And it should also produce such joy when we see the freedom that we have because we can't break this covenant that we have in Christ because the price for a broken covenant has already been paid. God's faithfulness to keeping covenants, as ugly and as hard as it is, is how we can trust the covenant that we are in now. So when we look at this first section, we see David is an ideal king because he submitted to God's standards and covenants. He is a covenant keeper even when the cost is high, just like God is a covenant keeper even when the cost is so high that it would cost his own son. All right, that's just the first half of the first frame, guys, but I promise it's going to move faster from here on out. Okay, now for the other half of that, fir- of that frame. The mirror to this section in that chiastic structure is the last chapter of the book, okay? We're told in this last chapter that God's anger was burning against Israel because Israel had sinned in some way, but we're not really told why then we're told that God incites David to sin as well and that David orders a census and that even though his commander pushes back because it's not a good idea, David insisted and the census was carried out. And then we're told that David realized that it was wrong. He repented because he knew he had sinned greatly. So this feels really confusing to us. Why was ordering this census such a sin? What exactly did David do wrong? Well, we don't really know for certain, but one thing that commentators have pointed out that could have been is that maybe this was a sign that David was shifting from putting his reliance and trust in God to win the battles for him into putting his trust in his military strength instead. If you'll notice in verse 9, the census didn't just number all people. It specifically numbered the amount of men who were valiant fighters. So it's not just saying, this is how many people you have in your kingdom. It's saying, this is the size of your military. This is your army. So it's possible some think that his sin was that he was trusting in his military power more than he was trusting in God, and that in doing so, he was looking more like all of the kings in the cultures around him, not the way they were supposed to be as Israelites. But this is all speculation. The text does not tell us. And the point of the story isn't really why what David said was sinful. We can only guess what was going on in his heart. We can only guess what caused him to do it. The point of the story is what he does after. What we're meant to see here is how David repents. Because earlier, when he sinned with Bathsheba, he needed a lot to happen to bring him to repentance. He needed Nathan to come and to make up this whole parable and to trick him and to finally open his eyes to repentance. Here, David is grown. And now he's a king who quickly and genuinely repents on his own. And he humbly accepts the consequences. So he's a model here for sincere repentance once again. And as a result of his repentance, we see his fellowship and the fellowship of Israel's, like, fellowship with Yahweh restored. Now, once David repents, God gives him three options for punishment. He could have three years of famine for all of Israel, three months of fleeing from enemies, basically war for all of Israel, or three days of plague for all of Israel. And David, he says that he does not want the middle one. He does not want to have to flee from enemies because he trusts that God is more merciful than man, okay, and so he is accepting whatever punishment that God is going to give him, but he wants whatever is going to allow God's mercy to come through the most for his people, so he ends up taking the three days of plague, so now once again, we're seeing a whole lot of people die for a sin that David committed, but that's really just one way to look at it, because notice at the beginning, it said that God's anger burned against Israel, that Israel had done something wrong here, not just sinning, not just David, So back in Samuel, something that will help shed some light on this, in 1 Samuel 12, verses 14 through 15, Saul had just been anointed king, and Samuel told something to the people. I'm going to read this from 1 Samuel. He said, If you will fear the Lord, and serve him, and obey his voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you, you as an Israel, If you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. So it kind of looks to me like in our text tonight, it looks like this is what happened. Israel was not obeying in some way, and so then the hand of the Lord was against Israel and their king. So the punishment that came as a result of David's census, it affected all of Israel. It seems to me like this story is not just about this one sin of David's, but about some sin of all of Israel. So Israel had sinned, and now because of that sin, we see that the Lord incited David to sin, which seems to be what Samuel said would happen back in the beginning of the book. So my interpretation of what's happening here is that in some way, David had to take on sin because of Israel. And as a result of that sin, there was punishment that brought death to tens of thousands of people. And then what did that lead David to do? What was his response? He said, don't kill all of them. He was moved for the people. He said, kill me. Let your hand be on me and my father's house. The sin is mine. Guys, do you see it? Do you see the foreshadowing of Jesus? Jesus taking on the sin of mankind, not in the same way, obviously, and then actually being able to deliver on what David wanted to do. David wanted to take that for himself. He wanted to die for his people, but he wasn't able to here. Jesus actually succeeded in that area. Guys, I don't know if that, if that doesn't foreshadow Jesus, I don't know what does. Um, On top of that, we see that Jesus actually is a descendant of David, so he is a part of his father's house. So when David cries out, God, let this punishment be on me and all of my household, we see this foreshadowing because eventually God is going to answer that generations later when Jesus is able to die the death that we all deserve. And then during all of this, David buys a a threshing floor, and he does this so that he can build an altar to the Lord. And he didn't know it at the time, but this site where he builds this um, altar is going to later become the site where his son Solomon is going to build the temple. So this story, it points us to the future in more ways than one. So we see in this story with this census that David is the ideal king because he is both repentant and redemptive, because it was David's relationship with God that saved all of Jerusalem. So I want you to think back on that chiastic structure again, okay? We've just covered this outer layer, guys. Don't worry. The rest of them go faster because they're not as confusing. But in that outer envelope, we had one story at the beginning that pointed us backwards to Saul. It showed us of how Saul broke a covenant. Then we have a story at the other end that points us forward to Solomon and the temple that is to come. Together, these two outer layers, this sandwich, it portrays David as the ideal king who keeps covenants faithfully, and he is humble, repentant, and redemptive, okay? So that's our outer envelope, our outer layer. Now we're going to move in a layer to the inner envelope and see what that layer tells us. So when we move in a layer, we're going to see two mirroring accounts of warriors, or mighty men of David, okay? So first, we've got the four that are listed before David's song, and these four have all struck down Philistines. And then after David's final words, we get this long list of mighty men. So why are these two sections included in this conclusion section of this entire book? Like, how do lists of other men tell us anything about why David was an ideal king? Well, let's start with the first part, the four who killed these Philistines, okay? In 2 Samuel 3.18, God said, By the hand of David, my servant, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Okay, so this was a big promise. One of the big things that God promises people that he was going to do through David was deliver them from their big enemy the Philistines. Here in this section, we see four specific Philistines that were killed. And these weren't just any Philistines. The author is careful to tell us that these were descendants of the giants. So these were kind of Goliath-type Philistines. He was considered one of the giants as well. So these were fierce. They represented the strength and the power of the entire Philistine army. And this section tells us that David and his men defeated them just like God had promised. Okay? So, in this short account of these four warriors, it shows us that God accomplished what he said he would through David's reign. So, in this section with these four warriors, we see that David is an ideal king because through him, God fulfilled his promises to his people in conquering the Philistines. Then, the other half of this, the other mirroring account, we have this longer list of all of his mighty men. And in this list, We read an account of some of them, and they're putting themselves at risk to get water from a certain well for him. So I want you to read this account with me. This is in chapter 23, verses 13 through 17. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. So this well that he wanted this water from, it was nostalgic to David because this is the well from his hometown. So when they were kind of in this like, situation, in passing, he just kind of says, man, I really long for water from that well. But the well was behind enemy lines. It was super dangerous to go there. But three of his men decided that they were going to put themselves at great risk just to get David some water from that exact well, the well from his childhood. David did not order them to do this. He did not even ask them to do this. They did it because they had affection for David and they were loyal to him. And This was a very, very touching move that they did here. But then we read on and we're like, wait a minute, they get it and he doesn't even drink it? Like that seemed crazy to me. And I I know when I read this, I was just kind of like, if that was me, I would be so mad right now. I would be so mad if I just put my life on the line and then he pours it out. Like that's what I read when I read this the first time but the thing is I'm looking at through the lenses of my culture and we need to learn how to look at it through the lenses of their culture because what he did it was actually a huge honor to his men like one commentator said the Israelites were not allowed to drink the blood of a sacrificial animal so David refuses to drink this water turning it into sacred blood worthy of sacrifice to Yahweh so we see here a situation where his men they wanted to serve their king but instead David honored them by letting their valiant deed serve and honor the greater king instead. We see in this section that David is an ideal king because when men want to serve and honor him, he points them to serve and honor God instead. He moves the honor from himself to his God. Who else have we ever seen do that in this book? Certainly not Saul, certainly not Absalom. This is an incredible thing that David did here. And it really shows where his heart is. Okay, so that's kind of the, that inner layer. Finally, we're at the point of the arrowhead. The main part of the text tonight that the author is really emphasizing the most by positioning it here in the middle. Okay? We have two poems: we have the song of David, and then we have David's last words. Now it's really fitting that the point the main point here is in the form of poetry. Do you remember in week one when we talked a little bit about genre? I kind of explained to you guys that 2 Samuel is mostly the genre of historical narrative. It's recording the history of what happened. But I also told you guys, if you remember, biblical historical narrative is not just telling history in the order that it happened and then that's it. Biblical historical narrative is history, but it's taken usually out of chronological order because it's arranged in order to teach us something. To kind of teach us theological truths that are really important. The hard part of historical narratives is then it's up to the reader to pull those truths out, okay? That's why we work so hard on this interpretation step that we keep on driving into you guys because that's what you have to do with historical narrative. It's up to us to interpret the truths from it. Interpretation is often tricky, and sometimes we get it wrong, and sometimes we miss the main point in favor of smaller points. Well, the beautiful thing about poetry when it's placed in historical narrative like this, like the song we're about to look at, is that there's a reason that they put poetry inside of historical narratives. Typically, it's included in order to tell us outright the theological truths that we were supposed to get from the narrative. So we read this story that took up all of First and Second Samuel, and it was full of these lessons, like these implicit lessons that we, the reader, were supposed to draw out. The poetry is then included to tell us This is what you were supposed to learn from all that. Like, this is the truth that was there. It tells us explicitly the theology that we were supposed to gain from the story. So one scholar said that this song should be taken as a theological commentary on the entire history of David. So in other words, we can rest from that hard work of interpretation just for a minute because the poem is going to now do it for us. So before we kind of address the poem, step back and look at the whole book again because this poem is explaining the whole book to us. At the beginning of 1 Samuel, the people rejected God as their king. They wanted a human king like the other nations. So in other words, they wanted a human king who would protect them when they needed protecting, who would rescue them when they needed rescuing, who would lead them, who would provide for them, who would bring them prosperity. So when we read all of First and Second Samuel, at first glance, it seems like, okay, well, wow, Saul really failed at doing that, but David really delivered. Like David was able to do all those things that they wanted out of a human king. So then we ask ourselves, well, is that what I'm supposed to interpret from this entire book? Or am I supposed to, is, um, is the main point that I'm supposed to draw from First and Second Samuel how great David is? Like, is it what a great king he was? Is the main thing I'm supposed to pull out of these books is that I should try to be brave like David and fight my own Goliath? I mean, sure, those are all good things that we should take from the books, but those are lesser things. We're kind of missing the main point. That does seem like what a lot of people pull from the stories here. So in case we missed the bigger picture, in case we missed the big point, Saul's, or David's song is going to tell it to us plainly. We're not going to read the whole thing. I kind of wanted to read the whole thing to you, but it's pretty long, guys. But I'm going to give you some highlights, okay? According to this song, if you have read it, who was the real rescuer and protector? Was it that human king that they had asked for? No. According to David's song, it was God who was constantly rescuing and protecting. We read in this song, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. Verse 18, David says, he rescued me from my strong enemy. Verse 20 says, he rescued me because he delighted in me. Verse 37 says, you gave me a wide place for my steps under me, and my feet did not slip, and on and on. David makes clear that, yeah, He did a good job of rescuing at times, but the real rescuer and protector behind it all the entire time was God. God was the rescuer. God was the protector. What about provider? Who was the real provider here? Was it David? No. Once again, David makes it clear that God was the true provider. Verse 40, For you equipped me with strength for the battle. He makes clear that God is the one who provided him with the strength when he had all of these military victories. Who was the real leader here? Verse 29, for you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. He wants people to know David was leading in a sense, but God was leading David. He was lighting David's path. He was his lamp. This entire song elaborately describes God as a mighty war hero, not David. Yeah, David certainly was a mighty warrior, but he makes clear in his song that he wrote that God was the source of all of his success. So according to David's song, what are we supposed to have interpreted from the entire books of First and Second Samuel? We're supposed to have interpreted that God is the true king. When Saul was the king, he saw himself as the king. He had little to no regard for God. This led to his downfall. David, however, lived in every way a life that declared God is the true king, not him. There's one commentator. He put it so beautifully that I just need to quote him. He was talking about David's song, and he said, David's history could have been narrated as that of a great and powerful king. This chapter, however, is concerned that it should be understood as the action of a great and powerful God. So in his song, we see David was the ideal king because he knew that God was the true king. He lived a life in complete submission to God, reliance upon God, and trust in God. What about his last words? The other poem that kind of mirrors this one, well, the main focus in his last words, everything that it all leads up to, is the covenant that God made with him. Verse 5 in his last words says, For he has made me, with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. And we know from the first story tonight that we can trust God when he says that his covenants are secure. And we also know that this covenant, when we look back at that covenant that David is referring to, this covenant pointed to a greater king to come, Okay? It's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. The people wanted a human king. God was the true king. And in Jesus, both things are finally true. God was going to be king as well as human, and he would be a king that could rule how David couldn't. So we see here that David was the ideal king because God was with him and with his line forever. He was the ideal king because God had made a covenant with him. And through that covenant, God was going to bring redemption not just to Israel but to everybody who would honor this greater king to come, who would make Jesus their king. So in these two poems, we're supposed to interpret that God is the king and that God was going to be with David in his line forever and there would be a future greater king to come, okay? And so if the kingship of God and the kingship of a future Messiah are the main two points, the main points that the author wants to gain out of the entire books of 1 and 2 Samuel, it's the tip of the arrow in this chiastic structure. We better fully grasp what that means. What does it mean that God is our king? What does it mean that, da- that Jesus is our king? You guys, I think that these statements that God is the true king um, or that we're supposed to make Jesus our king, we all would say that, we all believe it, but I don't think that they hit us as hard as they should. Because we don't live in a a country that's ruled by a king. We don't know what kingship really looks like. We live in a democracy. We have a president that leads that democracy, but we all have a vote, right? Um, We hold on to our personal freedoms in our country very tightly. We kind of think our president's there to serve us, but we don't typically think often about how could we serve our president, our country maybe. We want to serve our country. We value that. But not many people are going around thinking, how can I serve my president? when we kind of think about, okay, well, we don't have a king here, what is our framework for a king? Well, m- most of us, the only idea what we have of what a king is comes from whatever knowledge that we might have of the royal family in England, right? Like, that's kind of what we think of. The first thing I think of when I think of a king is the royal family in England. And those, th- it's mostly, symbol- they're mostly symbolic in their roles, They don't have the same power, political power, that kings would have had in ancient Israel. And so kind of from over here at a distance, we kind of look at that royal family. We look at them maybe for inspiration, right? It's for inspiration to us, maybe, but that's about it. So we need to ask ourselves, how much of all of that are we carrying over when we say that God is our king? Like, do we mean that God's somebody that we look to for inspiration, but that's about it? Or, like our president, is God somebody that we choose because his values align with ours, or he's going to make our life better? That's not how it would have been for ancient Israel. For ancient Israel, the idea of kingship was very different than what our understanding probably is. For ancient Israel, you were fully subject to your king, personal freedoms weren't so much their top concern. A king was who you followed. We saw David leaving, and we saw the people who were loyal to him pack a bag and walk out of town with him, right? They left their entire lives behind to follow the king that they were loyal to. The king was who you followed. A king was to be feared. He was who you put your trust in to protect you, to lead you, to guide you. His agenda was your agenda. You looked to him to settle your disputes and problems. We saw lots of times that people would come to the king to settle their disputes. If the king gave an order, you were going to follow it. You see, there was an element of reliance and submission that Israel would have had ingrained in them when they heard the word king that we tend to miss. We hate words like reliance and submission, probably because so many humans turn them into opportunities for abuse. And that's why I think that we have a huge number of people in churches all over our country who are essentially living more like Saul but they don't even know it. They're probably doing outer things that God expects them to do, that the things that make them look like a good Christian or that they think that Christians are supposed to do, but really functionally, they're acting as their own king. They're in charge of their own lives, and they're going to do what they want to do. They maybe want God to serve them and give them a good life, but they don't really want to serve God to the full extent that that means. They don't want to give up their own personal autonomy and lay down their plans to follow wherever God might lead them. They want to functionally be their own king, and there is a good chance that that might even describe some of us in this room. You guys, my son is turning eight next week, and one of the things that he says a lot when we're arguing, like if I don't give him something that he wants, a lot of times, I can't even count how often, he goes... I wish I was the boss. That's kind of one of his words. I wish I was the boss. And I kind of laugh in my head, and I'm like, yeah, don't we all? Because I don't think we ever really outgrow that feeling. I mean, isn't that really why the fall happened? Because we wanted to be like God? We don't really like somebody being the boss over us. So for several years now, I've talked to him about what it means to be a Christian. And I tell him that believing that Jesus is the son of God and that he died for your sins, that's part of becoming a Christian. But it's also saying, God is my boss. Like, he's my king. He's my king. My life is his, okay? So that's how I've explained it to my son. It's saying that I believe in Jesus. He died for me and he's my boss because that's the term that he's going to understand the best. So for my son, what I like to do is I like to put my hands out like this because I, I want to kind of gauge where he's at and see what he's thinking. So I kind of make this sliding scale and I'm like, okay, buddy, where do you think you are? Like this hand is, I don't really believe that Jesus and God are real. And this hand is, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. I believe he died for my sins and he is my king. And I'm like, okay, Jax, where are you? And he always puts his hand right about here. Okay, because the thing is, I think he believes that Jesus is the son of God, but he's not really ready to give up the idea that he's his own boss. And I would bet that that is exactly where a very large number of professing Christians actually are. Look at David. He lived a life that declared God is the true king. And isn't that really what it means to be a Christian? To live a life that in every way declares Jesus is the true king? A lot of times we hear that to be a Christian, you have to believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, and then we tend to reduce that to merely believing that he was truly the Son of God, but we ignore the part where he is our Lord, someone we're subject to, our King, who we leave our own lives behind in order to follow him wherever he leads us. So what do we learn from the book of 1 and 2 Samuel? I think that we learn that reducing God to a puppet who exists to serve us while we are functionally our own king kind of like Saul did is not what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to declare like David, not just with our words, but with every fiber of our being, with the things that we live out day to day, with our whole lives that Jesus is king. And if you're realizing as you're sitting in here or if you're listening to this later that maybe You've been living the former. You've settled for the former. Please talk to somebody. Come talk to me. Talk to your group leader or a trusted friend. Don't leave here tonight unsure of where you stand because Christ died for us, and we are to lay down our own lives and die to ourselves to follow him. Make Jesus your king. Let's pray. God, this book is so powerful, and it's just incredible the things that you teach us just through something like a historical narrative just through these literary devices, and there's so much power that comes from it. God, I pray that your spirit would be at work revealing the difference between functionally being our own king and honoring and really declaring with our whole lives that you are king. God, let this be something. This is one of those things that I think only your spirit can give us the eyes for. So, God, I pray that we would all leave here tonight with the eyes for it, if any of us don't already. God, we love you, and I pray that you would just be with us in our discussions tonight. Be present in a mighty and powerful way. Amen.